Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Voices for Change 2.0, the mental health podcast that's changing the discussion one voice at a time. Featuring guests that will help end the stigma and keep talking mental health. And now, here are your hosts, Rebecca and Joe Lombardo. Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you spending the next hour or so with us in our humble little program. <laughs> so I'm getting used to her uh yeah, opening the opening yeah yeah we, we say something about this almost every week it's it's us getting used to the new opening because we did darn near three years with the with the, with other the first one. one yeah and it's funny because i can barely remember what that even sounded like anymore <laughs> i just remember the scooby-doo drums i still don't know what you're talking about when you say that i'll have to we'll show you sometime. That later <laughs> yeah i'll show you that sometime so um all right so Here's the thing is I've been kind of reflective lately on aging and getting older and, and whatnot. I think part of that has to do with the deaths in recent years of some of my musical heroes, most recently Neil Peart from Rush and um, a drummer friend of mine posted on Facebook earlier this week uh, video and it's a tribute that the U.S. Army Band did for uh, Neil Peart where they perform uh, the Rush song Time Stand Still and I played it for Beck last night uh, I don't know what her reaction to it was but I thought they did a, a beautiful job you know and for those that don't know Neil was the main uh, lyricist for the band in addition to playing drums and he always had very poignant lyrics about things and time stands still is no different and it's my interpretation of it anyway is it's a song about appreciating life and friendships uh, relationships family um, over the passage of time mm-hmm. you know recognizing that you're getting older and, um, you know, just relishing the little things, you know, the, the small moments that you have because um, they're never going to come again, you know. And with uh, our niece and our great niece living with us and seeing our great niece, who's going to be 15 months this week, uh, make little strides you know, starting to walk and understanding language and different things like that, shapes and colors and stuff. And she's she's gotten down that if she laughs, we even, laugh. Even if she's faking, she we laugh at her. So then she keeps doing it. Yeah, which we is we have a whole video of her, <laughs> and then we all laugh, and then she <laughs> and it was absolutely priceless. It's adorable. It really is, but. You know, it kind of, it took me a step back hearing the song and especially hearing their, the army band's version of it because it helped me, and I hadn't listened to the song in a long time, but it helped me realize that that song at 45 years of age has a completely different meaning for me than it did 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I it almost drove me to tears because it really hit home so much with me on you know that we're getting older and and, you know I I always have appreciated every moment that I've had with you babe Mm -hmm. you know but especially now um, after hearing that after losing people that we've lost in life and everything um, I'm just grateful that I get to spend the rest of my days with you. Mm, I'm grateful too, babe. And I'm grateful for the last 18 years. 
And that that band did a really nice job with with the song. I, I'd never heard it before, so I can't. I don't have anything to compare it to. But as far as I could tell, they did a really nice job with the song, and um, it was very poignant. Yeah. So, um, so I guess my the only thing I'm trying to say is uh, those that you love and those that love you. If you see them today, give them an extra long hug. Give them a kiss. Um, tell them that you love them for no reason, just that you do. Uh, try to appreciate the little things. You know, uh, we go to concerts and whatnot, and everybody's holding up their cell phone and <clears throat> trying to get video of what's going on on stage, you know, and we stop doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more just trying to live in the moment, trying to appreciate. Yeah. It's like everybody spends so much time trying to take pictures and video of stuff when they, they're they not even fully getting the experience. The, yeah. The experience of, of what they're doing. Cause they're so busy trying to take pictures. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm a photography buff a little bit and I have a nice camera and everything, but I don't feel the need to, you know, take a picture of every living, breathing thing that I do. Right, right. You know, so and there's something to be said for just living in the moment, you know, taking that breath, appreciating <clears throat> what's in front of you, you know. So that's that's my soapbox for the day. <laughs> and that will lead us into our guest for the day. Yes. Uh, she is... She's a new friend, I guess we we could say. Yeah. We haven't, we haven't been talking for for very long, not as long as some of our other guests. And uh, she really, she, I believe she approached me when I put out that we needed a guest to fill in for another. And uh, I, I don't. Hello, are we still there? Are we still here, Scott? Hmm. Well, let's keep talking like we're still here. We keep hearing this weird beep. So, um, <clears throat> okay, yeah, cool. We're still here. Sorry about that. Sorry, guys. We heard a a beep and a a click, so we uh, got worried that our connection was bad. But so anyway, um, this new friend of ours she approached me about coming on the on the show, and I took a look at her Twitter profile and her her um, website. And I was really impressed with her, um, the way she tells her story and the, the, pos- the positive aspects of what she's been through, how she kind of turns it around and turns it into something funny that, that people can really relate to. So we are really glad to have with us today, Elisa Zapersky. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad to be with you all this morning. We are so glad to have you. Um, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I forgot to ask when we, before the show started, where where are you in the country, Elisa? I am in Washington, D.C. It is a cold but sunny day here in D.C. Okay, cool. So you, so you didn't have to get up super crack of dawn early to be with us. Which you is know, good. unfortunately, which would not have, which is not a cute look for me. Um, <laughs> I am not a morning person. My mom says, who I believe is listening, hi, mom, um, <laughs> that our family stayed together because we knew not to speak to each other at the breakfast table. Um, I come from a family of, of not morning people. So uh, I'm living on the right coast for my, my particular personality, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, your your mother is wise. Yeah. <laughs> Hi mom. Yes. Hi mom. <laughs> so that's awesome. And uh, in DC, that's exciting. We've I've been to DC. I've never been. Uh, we drove through it picking up Katie that time. Oh, that was so long ago. I know. I know. That's... I barely recall. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I recall the traffic. Holy, holy hell. Um, yeah, yeah. I uh, haven't had a car in many, many years. Um, unfortunately, don't drive in D.C. 
But um, I grew up in the suburbs in Bethesda, Maryland, and um, have been back in D.C. Uh, as an adult for about the last 10 years or so. And so it is home. Um, it is a um, always interesting place to be. Um, and I there's a whole sort of subculture of, you know, the dominant D.C., political world, um, and then there's also the other part of D.C. that's filled with lots of creative, amazing people, artists, uh, writers, mm-hmm. activists um, who are doing fun and interesting things. So um, I'm, I'm very lucky to have sort of found my people in this city. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool because you don't, you know, you hear about when it, when it comes to creative stuff, you hear about New York and you hear about LA and Chicago and Nashville, but, um, you know, hearing about other cities that you wouldn't normally imagine, you know, like DC, you, you think of DC and it's like you said, it's, it's political, you know, you don't conjure up, uh, images of, you know, poets and musicians and, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah, uh, you know, we have like a really, we have a really beautiful tradition of it. I mean, Duke Ellington is from here. If you want to take it all the way back to sort of, you know, wow. Black Broadway, which is what we called, uh, what the U Street Corridor is, it's now called, um, but the history, especially of, um, of Black artistry in the city, is is really. Uh, incredibly uh, robust and um, and awesome. But yeah, it's, it's funny because even within this city that is a bubble, I live in my own bubble and I um, had to go to the doctor one morning and the doctor's on K Street, which is where, you know, all the lobbyists and this, that and the other are. And it was in the morning and I, I took the uh, our subway, the Metro, and it was, you know, eight o'clock in the morning and I saw all the commuters and everyone wearing like ill-fitting, men in ill-fitting suits and um, in backpacks, that's like the look, and then women and Ann Taylor that they definitely resent having to wear um all on the subway together and I was like god I forgot this part of of living here um I live in my own separate bubble from this I forgot about you know the nine to five political um misery of uh, and and the really miserable uh uniform the aesthetic of it is just Mm. like really it's not a cute look but um (laughs) but yeah it's, it's a whole other world um but I um I have found my people and I love my people and um, I love this city. Hmm. That's very cool. Yeah, it's awesome. And I have been on the metro. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that what that, that song's about? No, that, I think that <laughs> the song is having to do with the one in uh, Paris. Oh, I'm really uh, dating myself. You are that. incredibly dating yourself. <laughs> uh, Elisa, do you even have any, do you know what song Beck is talking about? Absolutely not. Yeah, I didn't think so. It's a very old song. Uh, Berlin. Berlin. Yeah. Right. It's an 80s band called Berlin, and uh, you might remember them for the they whatever did that, the. It must have been Love, right? That's not. No, that, no, that was that's Rock, rock Set. set. Oh, no, shoot. Berlin. Okay, then I really don't know. Yeah, Berlin did the the Take My Breath Away from the Top Gun mm. soundtrack. Mm. That's Berlin. But they had another song called The Metro. Uh, very 80s sounding, very mid 80s, uh, lots of synthesizers and stuff. Yeah. And um, we are old. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a cool tune. Uh, check it out sometime. It. Check it out sometime. But yeah. And it's funny because I was probably in D.C. when that song was, was out because it was like 1986. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm old. I know. I was 12. I was. I was um, two years uh, from from being ready to be out in the world at that point. So, oh my God, you're young. I was an '88 baby. Yeah. Oh my God, I was. Uh, that was my first year, high school. Yeah, I was. I was in middle school in '88. <laughs> uh, going right back to what I originally talked about with time standstill and yep. yeah, just exactly everything circles around. <sighs> wow. <laughs> Well, let's get to uh, our agenda for the day, shall we? Yeah, before uh, I start getting whiter hair in my beard (laughs) than it already is. 
right. Oh, I thought you were going to go. Oh, no, I thought you were going <laughs> to Okay. We are a mess. Yeah. So. It's all right. It's it's us. We're we're honest people. We 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 uh you know tell people the truth and show the the weird sides of us along with the not so weird sides of us. So that's kind of I think what draws people to us. I think it's my big boobs. Oh, you're doing it again this week, aren't you? <laughs> you know, it's been a long week. <laughs> Don't judge. All right, you're going to get bad jokes. You're going to get stupid jokes, and that's part of my charm. It's part of why you married me. Mm, yes, dear. That's why you tolerate me for 18 years. All right. So, Elisa, we usually like <laughs> to start off with uh, one particular question, and uh, let us know if if you feel comfortable answering this. But where did your mental health journey begin? Oh, what a good question. Um, I think my mental health journey really began um, when I was first diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which I now recognize as complex post-traumatic stress disorder, um, when I was 20 years old. um, And I had experienced a, um, a death. Um, of a chosen parent, and that trauma of that death triggered, um, that sort of was a second trauma that triggered a primary trauma of my childhood. And so I'm a child sex abuse survivor. I was harmed by my father. Um, For your listeners, I'm not going to describe my abuse that I experienced, just sort of as a content warning there. Mm-hmm. And, but we'll, like, reference that this happened to me. But um, uh, so when I was first diagnosed with PTC in my grief um, when I was 20 years old, um, I was also um, processing for the first time what had happened to me as a child. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but that's, like, an incredibly normal and common um, way to process, especially, like, childhood sexual abuse, which is I was... Um, experiencing another trauma that sort of revealed this other trauma that had been there um, and sort of lying dormant for a really long time. And and I was in college. It was like truly the middle. So I I graduated in four years, and it was like the middle of the summer between my sophomore and junior year. So you could like draw sort of a perfect line in my college experience of having um, lived without trauma and then or sort of knowingly living without trauma um, to um, living with trauma and um, grief for the second for those other um, two years. I spent a lot of time on college campuses working with college students and um, especially those that are um, sexual violence survivors and it is so interesting for how many of us college like that those years those like Early, early 20s are really triggering time um, where we're like out of the house and we're safe enough to um, to really be processing things that happened to us in our childhood, um, mm-hmm. often for the first time. And so that's for me really where my mental health journey, um, where I think I would describe it beginning was, was with that trauma um, <clears throat> bringing up and um, really starting to process what had happened to me as a kid. And we've, we've talked to, about this before where it seems like that age range, um, the, the, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 area is where a lot of people start to experience their symptoms for the, you know, stronger than, than usual mm-hmm. and end up having to, to seek help in some way. It's, it seems it seems like almost everybody we talk to talks about if it wasn't first thing when they were a little kid, like age nine or ten, then it's out of high school and on their way into college that mm-hmm. they start experiencing the symptoms. Yeah, it seems like uh, almost a going hand in hand thing with the process of puberty, kind of. Yeah. You know, like you, you know all these other um, hormones and stuff. Uh, start coming into play, you know, you're growing hair in weird places and whatnot. Well, that's not 18, 19. That's no, that's younger. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's 
that whole peer review section is a huge process. And at some point in there, you know, whatever's going on with you physically, there's something that has to happen to you mentally. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, I think the the mental part of it kind of uh, – manifests itself more on on the back end of it you know when you when you are 18 19 20 mm-hmm. you know uh also going along with what elisa said about you know you're you're on your own for the first time you're right. in college you're you know you don't have that uh shelter of being at home you know you're you're an adult you know and you're facing very adult things uh sometimes for the first time, yeah. you know, and that can be very overwhelming. That in and of itself is traumatic, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and, so. I, and I might turn that on its head a little bit, um, and, and I think that that's really true for a lot of people. For a lot of us who grew up with trauma in our families, it's actually um, leaving the house or leaving is when we are actually first feeling safe, so for a lot of us, uh, we're mm. experiencing safety for the first time in leaving. You know, with the statistics with childhood sexual abuse, it's one in four girls, one in six boys experience sexual violence before they're 18 years old. And of that, about half of the time they're harmed by somebody else who's also a minor, who's also under 18. Um, but um, for the other half, when they're harmed by an adult, 80% of the time that adult is a parent. So there mm. is this Um, unspoken epidemic of sexual violence that's happening in our homes um, and happening to us in our childhood. And I think for those of us, the millions of us um, that have experienced that, um, sometimes it's, you know, it's leaving the home is actually when we're experiencing um, a lot of safety and, you know, our brains have this incredible capacity to protect us from, um, from things that are, are harmful or threatening to us. And a lot of times I think when we leave the house and we're stabilized somewhere else, um, our brain gets the signal like, it's okay now um, to start processing some of them. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, I, I see that just, you know, in my own story, but in the story of so many other um, child sex abuse survivors. Um, and at the same time, it's also like a very – um, unsafe time, right? Like you have the safety of being out of the homes, um, but also, you know, especially if you're in college, college campuses have an epidemic of sexual violence um, mm-hmm. and other forms of violence on their campuses too. And so um, it is both like the safety of being away and the lack of safety of these dangerous spaces that can just be so, so damn triggering, just so damn triggering. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, What made you decide to start a blog? I started HealingHonestly.com a little over three years ago um, because I was in a place in my healing where I was was 27 years old and I um, felt like I was really finally then coming to terms with being a childhood sexual abuse survivor and what had happened to me. Um, so I was from age 20 to 27 was me really, um, it, it, just to like, if you're out there and you are a child sex abuse survivor and you are, um, sort of in it and trying to figure out, um, your relationship to what happened to you. I mean, it took me seven years to be able to confidently and comfortably identify as a child, a childhood sexual abuse survivor. Um, so at 27, when I was, I was there and, and in a certain part of my healing, I was looking for um, support and I felt like everywhere I looked online, I was getting one of two sort of responses. I was either getting like all this clinical information written from psychologists and researchers and academics and it was all about how I was like totally screwed and how the (laughs) most who experienced childhood sexual abuse were like faded to these lifetimes of all these medical problems and all this stuff and I was just like I don't need to hear about like my percentage of likelihood that I'm going to like have cancer over somebody else who like this didn't happen to uh, mm-hmm. This thing that I had like no control over happening to me, like this is not helpful to me, right? Like this is. Right. Um, I just felt like I was like, 
it was almost like I was learning that I was a childhood sexual abuse survivor. And I was like, damn, like, does this mean like I'm, I'm just sort of screwed. And, um, and I felt like, so there's all this like academic literature out there that just like tells me all the things that are wrong with me. And then on the other side, there was like some survivor stuff out there, but I just really didn't resonate with it. It felt, you know, um, like there were a lot of at the time, like, uh, like plat, like Instagrammy platitudes and quotes, and mm. uh, sort of pseudo wellness. Like take these seven steps, and you're going to be healed. And also drink all this green juice and like namaste, you know. And that yeah. like, really didn't feel like me either. I, um, I was coming to terms of realizing that like two things were true at the same time, which is I was a young person interested in having a healthy sex life and a big, beautiful career and being a good friend and having fun and drinking tequila and watching Netflix and, and just being like a bold and alive and that my trauma was impacting every aspect of my life. And I just Mm. felt like there wasn't really a place to talk about both of those things being true at the same time, that somehow either one negated the other. And so I just felt like maybe I could put this out in the world about being a young person trying to live a full and vibrant life while healing from sexual trauma and that maybe other people are asking the same questions as me. And, um, and so I started healing, honestly, that just writing stories about um, <clears throat> using my own personal life um, with anecdotes and a healthy dose of humor. And um, it's really amazing. Over the years, it's grown 65,000 readers, um, which is really amazing from all over the world. Um, Mm. And all just like wanting to talk about the things that have just felt too scary and inaccessible for us, but are our everyday lives. Wow. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, yeah, that's one other thing that I've noticed too. I've noticed it going back to when Beck started her blog um, years years ago now. 2013. Yeah. Um, everybody I think that we've talked to that has done what you've done, Elisa, uh, starting a blog, telling your story, putting it out there, it's, and this revelation just hit me as you were explaining it, is that Everyone that's done that is doing it because they're trying to fill this niche that they notice nobody else has filled. You know, um, you said yourself, you went out, you saw clinical things saying this is, you know, your your ass is going to fall off or something. <laughs> and, um, you know, or you find all this other stuff that maybe, you, you know, it works for other people, the namaste and, and, you know, you're like, namaste going over here. Um, but mm-hmm. for you, you know, you're like, this is, this is my reality. This is what I'm putting out. This is how I'm feeling about things. And, you know, you're seeing a very, I think, positive response from it, you know, having 65,000 people all over the world reading your words and it, resonates with them you know um it's filling a hole that other people share you know they've got that same hole and and you know being brave enough to put your story out there is is just awesome so well done you thank you thank you yeah it's it's been and you know an extraordinary experience i the part that always even though it's only been a couple of years, but that it just makes me feel like my life has changed so dramatically from doing this work is that um, when I started, I did not know any other childhood sexual abuse survivors openly uh, when I started mm-hmm. writing. And while it's, it's really amazing to hear from people in India and Australia and Chile and Austria, like truly all over the world, or like, hey, I I totally relate to what you're going through. And while that's, like, really amazing um, and beautiful, what was so overwhelming, especially in the first, like, six months to year, was 
um, learning that I had been surrounded by childhood sexual abuse survivors my whole life um, and didn't know it. Um, and that so many people mm. were experiencing the same things as me. And I mean intergenerationally, uh, not just sort of my friends, but my friends' parents, family members of mine, people in their 70s and their 80s, people who had passed on, um, who had all um, experienced um, childhood sexual abuse too and had been so silenced to that experience. And so, um, which is what is so wild to me now because now I like, I feel like my life is so full of other survivors. Um, but when I started this work, you know, part of me was writing this because I didn't know other people uh, like me and um, other people who were experiencing this. And, um, you know, this work that I do stands on the back of, um, and it's possible because of the work that so many people before me have done to break open um, the conversation around childhood sexual abuse and being harmed by the family. I think about people like Aisha Shahida Simmons, whose anthology just came out this fall called Love with Accountability. That was all about um, uh, people in the black diaspora and how they um, how who are child sex abuse survivors and how they're holding people accountable in a way that doesn't use the criminal justice system for the harm that's been caused. And, um, and she's been doing this work um, as a survivor for decades. Um, and, um, and I think about, you know, Sylvia Rivera, who was one of the um, first people to throw a stone at the Stonewall riots. And, um, and she was the open childhood sexual abuse survivor And she and Marsha P. Johnson, you know, started building a house for other queer LGBTQ um, children of color who were, who were a lot of them leaving that, trying to escape the sexual abuse that they were experiencing. And um, anyway, and so I've, I've learned my history over doing this work, um, but, you know, I, I feel so lucky to get to share in my own way, in my own style, in my own words, um, and connect with people who have the same sort of sensibility. Um, but I, I very much do this work standing, you know, on the shoulders um, of so many people who have come before me, um, who have been fighting to have visibility um, and support for child sex abuse survivors. Very cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, well, at this point, we're going to take a little break. Uh, I, I wish we had the legal clearing to play time stand still, <laughs> but we don't. So instead, we're going to listen to Trevor Page, and the song is titled Afraid. We'll see you on the other side. We will see you on the flip. Give him blue. We don't want him confused. And we don't want anyone to get the wrong idea stand up straight cause boys shouldn't act that way I'm sorry kid some things will never change but that's all that I wanted to do
for Change 2.0. I'm Joe. She's Rebecca. She's cute as a button. Look at her. Just look at her. She's so cute. Nobody can look at me. Stop that. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I forgot. Yeah. Radio. Uh, picture her in your mind, if you will. Um, and on the line, we have the lovely and talented Elisa Zapersky. Hi. Hi. It was, it was funny. I'll tell you a little <laughs> trick of the trade. I was trying to... Um, I was trying to type out the information for the show on Twitter, and I had spelled your name, mis- misspelled your last name on our our calendar, our desk calendar. So I went and I saw what you what it was, what you wrote, and then I had to go over to the other side of the room to write it down. And the whole time I'm going zip purse ski, zip purse ski. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> All the way across the room, out loud, I said it's a nobody. <laughs> I didn't That's know she perfect. Did yeah, I grew that... up hearing a lot of Alyssa instead of Elisa, and um, I it took me uh, longer than I care to admit to get to the age where I was like, under no uncertain terms, am I going to uh, let somebody call me the wrong name and not correct them anymore? Um, yeah. And yet, like, um, I've had the same woman cutting my hair for 11 years, and she'll still call me Alyssa. And it's just like, too much time has passed. She does such a great job. I can't risk this relationship. I don't trust anyone else with my hair. Like, Nicole can call me Alyssa. She's the only one, but she can call me Alyssa. That's funny. Yeah, when my, my parents were alive, they were the only ones allowed to call me Becky. Oh, there's there nothing, you go. There's nothing yeah. that grinds my gears more than being called Becky. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Eight, mm-hmm. 18, 18 years of marriage, I've never called her Becky. <laughs> smart, smart. Yes. That's why it is 18 years. That's why it is 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So um, I feel like we've answered a, a few of these. What do you want to jump in on? I'm sure it probably should have established this while we were taking our break. <laughs> that would have been a good idea. So have you have you had an overall positive experience with sharing your story? Yes, definitely. Um, I know that the Internet is a dark and scary place. Um, the mm-hmm. Internet thus far has been very kind to me. Um, thank you, Internet. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> been really remarkable. Okay. Um, I, it's been really remarkable to feel so connected to people um, across so many different barriers um, and to know how not alone I am in the way that I feel and what I experience. And I mean, I should definitely say, I think that there is, especially right now, a tremendous amount of, uh, some of it intentional, a lot of it unintentional pressure on sexual violence survivors to be public and to share our stories. Um, And a lot of us get, those of us that are public get sort of exalted in this way and like called very courageous and heroic. And, um, and I, I know from other survivors um, that that can have this unintended consequence of making them feel like, Oh, I, 
should tell my story publicly or if I'm not sharing it publicly, like somehow I am less courageous. Um, and mm. I think it's really important to talk about like that being a sexual violence survivor is just like waking up in the morning and deciding to like just wake up. Like that takes a lot of yeah. courage and that's sort of full stop. For me, and being public and sharing my story was very much because that was totally aligned with what I needed for my healing. Like, it made me feel safer to be public than to not be public. I made this very intentional decision. I was going to use my full name, Elisa Zapersky, that, like, when you Googled me, that you were always going to see this about me. Um, And it made me feel safe to know that I could never be forced to hide this part of myself anymore. Um, and that, that was like very healing for me. And somebody could have gone through like truly the exact same thing as me and come to a different conclusion about what was best for them or for their healing. And that's like so valid and so good. And so I, I, I'm careful to, you know, like for me being public has been awesome um, in terms of how connected it's made me feel to other survivors, um, how healing it's been for me to be able to speak my truth and not feel like I have to hide away this part of myself anymore. But um, that's only because, like, that is very specific and true to me and my healing. And everybody's healing journey is very, like, individual to each of us. Um, and so, so I, I like to sort of offer that as well. But um, in sharing my story, it's been interesting because often it's the things that I share that I feel like are most um, potentially isolating, like the things that I write that I think, oh, God, is anybody going to read this and be like, I can relate? Or am I going to be like the only one out here standing being like, anyone, anyone, um, <laughs> Bueller? Um, <laughs> that those are the things that people like, that resonates most deeply. And that's been like a really surprising part of this work. So like, for example, in like May of 2017, I wrote this story that just felt sort of like this confession that um, it was called, gosh, what did I call it? Something like what it's like to remember what you don't remember. And um, it was about how I have non-narrative memories of my childhood sexual abuse. I don't have clear memories of what happened to me that have, like, a beginning, a middle, and an end. I have, like, what are called, like, body or somatic memories, like, flashes and nightmares and visions and physical memory. My body is, like, is when it's triggered, is physically going back to a place of trauma and, um, and abuse and um And I felt like I was writing this being like sort of this, okay, I have been telling you all I'm this like quote unquote real survivor, but I'm not this quote unquote real survivor because like I can't remember clearly what happened to me. And that made me feel really like invalidated in my survivorship. So I wrote this story and then six months later, the Harvey Weinstein story broke and my story went sort of like viral and like six months after writing it. And um, two years later, it is still like 90% of my web traffic is people Googling and ending up on that story. It is without fail, overwhelmingly what I hear most about from other survivors that they're Googling, like cannot clearly remember my childhood sexual abuse or body remembers, no mind doesn't remember um, and ending up on my story. And turns out <laughs> There are millions of us that are um, that are being triggered by the world around us and trying to make sense of what we're going through, and our bodies are telling us um, that that we've been through trauma, and our minds are not as clear about it. And this has like been studied a lot scientifically, and there's you know all the science supports all of this, um, but. Um, but it was so interesting because it was a story that I, like, wasn't even sure I was going to write because I felt like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, it's going to be really isolating and people are going to be like, I can't relate to this woman at all. What the hell is she talking <laughs> about? And it turns out it is, like, the thing that people most are, like, hungry to talk about and connected with, which just, like, shows the power of stigma and destigmatizing work. It's funny that you mentioned that because that – uh, goes right into our next question, which is what steps do you feel 
we need to, to take going forward when attempting to destigmatize childhood sexual uh, abuse. Abuse. Thank you. Oh boy, there are so many. There are so many, and so many amazing people doing really, really incredible work around this. So. Um, my friend, Ignacio Rivera, whose project is the HEAL Project, they're completely reconceptualizing the way we talk about, um, the way we think about sex education and the way we talk about sex with kids um, and what, like, holistic sexuality education would look like um, and teaching children about things like body autonomy and feeling safe in their bodies and what does that mean and doing it at much earlier ages than we commonly have these conversations. Ignacio is a, a child sex abuse survivor, too. So it's a survivor-led work, and it's amazing. And so they're, like, talking about it from, this, from the, the standpoint of, like, sex education and talking with kids, which is, like, so amazing and so important. And um, and then Aisha, who I told you about before, is working on it in, in terms of, like, talking about it in the way that we hold our family members accountable and how child sex abuse actually, like, impacts the entire family and the entire community, and we all need to be talking about that. Um, it's not just something that happens between a child and an adult. Like it impacts all of us, and um, yeah. and we need to be talking about that because um, a lot of us are also like complicit in the harm that is caused, and we need to have the capacity and the work and the space um, and the language to be able to talk about that. Um, and then there are people like Amisa Swadine, who is whose project Mirror Memoirs. They interviewed 60 LGBTQ child sex abuse survivors of color um, to learn from their leadership and to center the most marginalized um, uh, survivors and learn from their their work about how um, how we can end this like epidemic of sexual violence. So there's so many people in the field doing like really exciting, amazing work. And uh, it takes sort of everyone from all of these different angles, um, from mm-hmm. all of these different foci to have these conversations. But the fact of the matter is, is that child sex abuse still is considered this family issue. Incest is considered a family-based issue. You can see about how Woody Allen is still, like, it's still acceptable to work with him. And a lot of people are like, the issue with him and his and and Dylan Farrow is like a family issue and not that the family actually like that <laughs> that it's happening in every community across the world across the country that there's no sort of culture or community for which this is not being impacted and we need to be honest about this happening i think people are so uncomfortable talking about childhood sexual abuse, understandably so, but, um, and then when we do, it seems like the only cases that get, you know, amplified are often people for whom um, the person isn't quite as close as a parent is, you know, maybe they're a coach or a doctor or a religious leader or a teacher, and those stories matter, and they're really important, but uh, statistically, it's most likely that it's going to be somebody in your family and specifically a parent that's harming you. And we, it's so uncomfortable for people to talk about, but we have to talk about that. Um, and we have to be able to, um, to be open and honest about what's going on in people's lives because we're not doing anybody a service by pretending that, um, that this isn't the lived reality of, of you know, millions of us in the United States. And so I think that those are really, you know, important conversations, but also really importantly, we have to be talking about who is being harmed. I think that still, even as far as we've come in talking about sexual violence and sexual trauma, we still think about sexual violence in this unidirectional way that of stories like my own, where I was a cis girl who was harmed, or like a cis straight girl who was harmed by a cis man. And we still think, uh, I think a lot about sexual violence in those terms. Um, we talk about women and girls, but child sex abuse, uh, one in six boys are mm-hmm. sexually abused as well. Um, and we really need to talk about that. Queer and trans presenting kids, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, 
um, are at a really high risk of childhood sexual abuse. In their 2012 study, they found that um, a child assigned male at birth that's like femme or gender nonconforming presenting is six times more likely to be sexually abused than their like gender conforming peers. And we need to be talking about that too. Like we need, you know, we have to be honest about who's being harmed um, and also expand sort of who we think about when we think about survivors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, Do you want to ask that? Go ahead, honey. Okay. Uh, So what are some best practices if a friend or loved one confines, confides in you about being a sexual violence survivor? Great question. Um, this is actually something that I wrote about with my best friend um, for Teen Vogue. Um, so you can go on my site and you can see a, a link. So me and my bestie, Kate, we wrote about being a good friend to a sexual violence survivor and give some, some tips and some strategies. Um, I think that the most important thing is to honor uh, the survivor and honor whatever it is that they think is best for themselves. Like the survivor is going to be the expert in their own safety. So they may make decisions that you may not, you may think that like you might have made a different decision, whether it comes to reporting or having a relationship with the person who harmed them. Um, or steps that they want to take. And it's really important to honor, like, the survivor is the expert in themselves and in their own safety. Um, And the best thing that you can do is support them through that. Um, And I think also um, recognizing that the survivor, no matter who they are, is going through so many layers of rape culture (laughs) that tell them that that their pain isn't real and that their pain doesn't matter. Um, We hear these messages throughout our lives, and then we often hear them also from people who matter to us. So I think consistently communicating to them that their pain is real and that their pain matters um, and that you see them and that you you validate and affirm that is really, really important because there's just so much – going on within us that make us feel like for whatever reason, we're not a quote unquote real survivor. I would also say mirror and use the language that the survivor is using. So if they're not calling it child sex abuse and they're not calling it rape, then, you know, call it what they're calling it. Let them choose the language of how they talk about what they've been through. Um, And I would say also recognize that the way trauma works is it um, impacts us so much further than the initial harm that we've been through. Like, um, this is the whole, like, why it's so awful for trauma survivors and people are like, it was a long time ago, you should be over it. And you're like, that's cute, but that's not how trauma works. Um, Trauma is actually, like, uh, in a lot of ways, more about brain damage than it is about, uh, like, a mental illness. Um, But... Uh, but that's another conversation. But um, <laughs> but anyway, so trauma impacts you for like a hell of a long time, like way longer than the initial harm. And so being a good friend also just means like being there in it, like months after, years after, honoring that like everybody's healing process is going to be different. And just to be like a super solid person through that whole experience is so valuable, so important. And if your friend, this is the advice that I give on college campuses all the time, um, uh, talking about friendship is like the most common question I feel like that I hear from um, survivors on campus and the people who love them. Um, something my best friend Kate does to me, and when I'm having a really bad day, she just asks me this amazing question. She just asks, um, well, what's something kind you're doing for yourself today? And hmm it just automatically puts me in the position of reminding me that I need to care for myself and that I'm worth taking care of and that what I'm going through is is worthy of taking a moment to do something kind for myself. And then she holds me accountable to it, right? So she'll check in and be like, how is, you know, you eating Thai food and watching Netflix going? Um, And it's just little things like that, that when the journey is, uh, sort of ongoing and there's no like uh, point of like finite where you're like, I'm healed. Um, 
But to have mm-hmm. a friend be able to do that with you is super awesome. And the last thing I'll say is uh, about that is, um, and this is not I've talked about enough, I think, is like, yeah, be there with them in the darkness and the like really nitty gritty of it. Stand beside them, honor them, but also celebrate the good stuff with them because there are so many beautiful and awesome and important moments in healing um, and having somebody who wants to celebrate that with you is so badass. Like if something mm-hmm. that used to be like super triggering to you now is something that you, you know, were able to, to experience and stay in your body and stay safe, like celebrate that. That's awesome. Um, and so I think that that's a really um, important part of being a friend too. Awesome. Very good advice, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we are winding down here to uh, the, the end of the show, but we did want to ask you about, you know, what's coming next for you and uh, about your social media where people can find you online. For sure. So um, so please come visit healinghonestly.com. I have all the fun things there, all of the articles, lots of writing, lots of good fun links and things like that. Um, and, uh, what's next for me is, um, a lot of my work right now is working on college campuses, talking about healing from sexual trauma and rape culture on campuses. So, um, so you can follow along with my work on there. If you are um, on campus or part of an organization and looking, especially coming up with April with sexual assault awareness month, um, for speaker, hit me up, let me know, we can chat. Um, but so lots of fun time on campuses is, um, is what's in store for me next, but follow along on, um, healinghonestly.com. Right now we're doing a lot of work on the lie of false memory syndrome, which is a lie. Um, and so you can um, read more about that there. Um, and also you can follow me on Instagram at Elisa Zapersky, A-L-I-S-A. Z-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. You will see awesome photos of my puppy, Franklin, My mm-hmm. um, also my employee. Um, he won Employee of the Year last year for Healing Honestly. Um, <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at Healing Honestly. Okay, perfect. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on with us today. We had, I think we've had a really good conversation. Yes, Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's so great to talk with you all and to be here with you. What a beautiful way to start the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks. All right. Well, stay on the line for just a minute, and we are going to be uh, leaving you guys until next week. But until then, listen to A Treat for Joe. (laughs) You're still on the air for a few seconds to talk over the song. So we can talk over this song, Okay. whatever it is that that Scott has cooked up to play. I don't know who the singer is of the show, but it's called A Treat for for Joe. No, this is... Oh, Oh. I understand. He's saying it is A Treat for You. It's for me. Oh, thanks, Scott. (laughs) Guys, this is Time Stand Still, and it's the U.S. Army Band version of it. Surround me. 